Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is a re-release of the conversation that I had with industry legend Gerald Hines back in the spring of 2018. Mr. Hines passed away last week at age 95, so we're taking the opportunity to honor Gerald Hines and the organization that he built with a revisit of that conversation. Gerald Hines was one of the transformational leaders in the real estate business on numerous levels. First, he was the pioneering developer of the Class A architected office high-rise. Second, at the same time as Trammell Crowe, that other Texas developer, he built a regionalized partnership model that has persisted through multiple generations of leadership, both at the local and the national level. Third, like Tishman Spire, they took the Class A office business international. And then finally, like others, the company moved from solely a developer model to an AUM model, managing institutional capital. With each successive phase, the company maintained and built upon its cultures and values. Quite a legacy. With leading voices, I've had the opportunity to speak with many legends in the business, and I will admit to butterflies and am I worthy to engage each time I've had these conversations. I'll never forget the interview with Mr. Hines in his office overlooking his signature Houston Galleria. He was gracious, thoughtful, and engaged at what I think was then his 91st year. We've lost a true legend and pioneer in the real estate business. If you want to hear some of the other pioneer interviews, try out the Leading Voices interviews with Sam Zell, Art Gensler, Ron Terwilliger, Leonard Wood, Andres Duani, and others. If you like the conversations, please subscribe to the podcast and share the series with your friends. Thanks for listening in. But just an introduction to, to you. Um, you're the founder of Heinz. You founded the company in 1957, the year when I was one. <laughs> um, and you're still here. You grew the company to be in 201 cities in 24 countries, and you have $110 billion of assets under management. And I think there's two stories about your company that I want to talk to you about, as well as your story. One is that you've built great buildings, and that's what you've, you're known for. But you've also been an amazing investor, and you have a lot of assets under management of third-party capital, and those are two different things. So I want to talk about that. But I want to hear your story and how you got into this and why we're here and how you did what you did. So maybe start at the beginning. You were born in Nova Scotia, I think? No, no. no. I was born in Gary, Indiana. Okay. My parents were born in Nova Scotia, and they came to the United States before I was born, about five years before I was born, and uh, then I was born, 1925. 1925 in Gary. Gary, Indiana. Okay. And then tell me about school and your training and how you got started. Well, I went to a, a public high school, Emerson High School in uh, Gary. It was a block and a half from my house. And um, we I participated in cross-country running, track, and uh, we had a very good team, uh -huh. and we won the uh, uh, city championships on cross country. So that was good. The long race. Yes, yes. Cross country. Yes. 
that's maybe why you like cycling as well, because those are long, long well, days of exercise. <laughs> yeah. And were you competitive back then? Was competition something that meant something to you? Oh, and I, I enjoyed a little competition. Had it in high school in track, and uh, so it was it was interesting. And then you went to school at Purdue and studied mechanical engineering. And uh, I went there before I was 18, and then for approximately a year, because I left my high school and didn't finish my senior year, and uh, went to Purdue. In that period, you could get three semesters in in one year, which I did before I was 18. Wow. And... Uh, so that gave you a leg up when you went into the Army because you had some college. Did you then go into the I Army? I went into the Army, yes. After school? Uh, yes, yes. And then after the Army, you came back and went to work. And where did you settle? Did, was that, did you stay in Indiana or is that when you came well, to? Well, I went to, uh, in the Army, and then I went to OCS, okay. Austin Candidate School, and then I went to Fort Lewis, Washington. It was my first posting. And that was interesting. I got a chance to, to see Seattle and Tacoma. What was so interesting about them back they then? Were west, they were West Coast uh -huh. cities and the port and just the, the quality of the architecture and the uh, care that the people had for their cities. Huh. And back then, when you were in the Army, what, what part of the Army were you in? The Corps of Engineers. Of, of course. And were you thinking about... The architecture then, when you went to those cities, did you fall in love with that at that well, time? Well, I just, um, that was something I noticed and was interested in. Took note of the buildings in those cities. Right. And then what came after the Army? Back to university and uh, to complete my mechanical engineering degree, which I did, and then went with a manufacturer in Detroit called American Blower Corporation. And they sold a lot of mechanical equipment for buildings, and uh, like big fans and other equipment. And then I went in partnership with Arthur Barnes in what was called Texas Engineering, which he had founded in the 50 years ahead. And was he here in Houston? Is that what brought you to Houston? He was in Houston, yes. And we represented a lot of engineering companies in Houston and were effectively their agents, and we collected commissions on what we sold. Uh -huh. Were you selling engineering consulting services? No, we were selling engineering products. Systems. Okay. Like big fans... Uh, heat exchangers, boilers, that type of thing. Got it. So then what was the leap for you a, into your own business, but then also into real... What was the leap? I guess your own business came first. Yep. Talk about that. Well, that was just my partner and I, and he was like 65, and I was a young, under 30 right. uh, guy. and uh, But he had the accounts... And which was very important to have those accounts. And um, 
make takeoffs on every new building that came up on what equipment we could provide and put out quotations to the contractors. And then when they were awarded, we went and tried to solicit the order for those that equipment. Right. So how long were you selling equipment, and then how did that turn into building buildings? Well, <laughs> big shift. Probably for four or five years, and then I started, what are we saying, when we started? Uh, 1957 is what this says. Was that the first building? Okay, my, that was when my next-door neighbor said he needed a 5,000-square-foot needed a building, and I said, let me build it. So we worked that out, and uh, uh, I built it over on Richmond Avenue, and that was for Fisher and Porter. And were you, did you have your own company by then, or were you still in partnership with? I was still in partnership. So on the side, you built your first building. Yep. 5,000 yep. feet. Yep. Did you know that might be the future of a great empire? Nope. Tell me what happened next. How did that keep going? Well, then evidently other people found out that we built there and asked us for quotes. And I think the next one was A.M. Lockett. Um uh, from New Orleans, and that was a much bigger building. That was a 40,000-square-foot building, 10,000 office, and 30,000 square feet of warehouse uh-huh. on 11th Street. And uh, so that was a, a large property. And then we got a big Western Auto, which was about 250,000 square feet. That was a large project. And then we just kept bidding on other projects that came up. And the brokers seemed to like working with us, and they'd bring us in to help them secure a project. So when did you let go of the equipment and focus fully on building buildings? Uh, probably it took four or five years, something like that, four, three or four years. So then you're solely building buildings. Here's the question I have, and I'm so curious given what these first buildings were like and what we know of you now, because we think of Heinz and iconic buildings, and we think of you specifically with world-class architects. So how do you morph and change this from 5,000-foot buildings and 50,000-foot building, half of which is warehouse, into beautiful, iconic buildings. What, what happened? Well, we just evolved the projects with the good architecture, uh, at least better than our competitors. And so we got, uh, and the brokers seemed to get the fact that we had a very high hit rate. And so that attracted the better brokers to us with their projects and uh, at, uh, where quality and a good value sustained our entry into that. Uh -huh. were, were, were those buildings then coming in at a higher price point to, of cost to build? Was that ever the rule well, or always the rule? They Maybe we took a little lower return so than our competitors who wanted a much higher return rate than we did. Mm -hmm. And 
but we had a very good lender and a mortgage broker who was Ben McGuire, and he was uh, probably the foremost mortgage broker in in the Southwest, and um, he had very good clients like New England Mutual and Mass Mutual, and New England. I got to know the investment officers. They liked what we did and the quality. And then we had King Upton with First National Bank of Boston that liked what we did. And he provided a lot of the financing. Mm -hmm. uh, even though he was in Boston, he could make a higher loan than what we could get in Houston, Texas. Higher loans are good things, but you still need equity. Were you playing with your own money or did you have investors well, deal I had by deal? Both. I had, we had outside investors like the Duncans and uh, the Duncan brothers, other people that invested with us. Uh huh. So let's stick in this era for a minute because I'm really curious. If I look at the real estate business, there's, well, I, we think of Texas developers. And we think a lot of you and we think a lot of Trammell Crow and maybe Lincoln. There's these crazy Texas guys building a lot of buildings. But they each had a different vision about this, I think. And you're the lasting one of that trio who we think of iconic buildings. The other companies are still, that's just still around. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful companies. But it's just a different vision. Did, how, was there something special happening in Texas for people to become worldwide developers? And how did you, were they your peers and friends? Just talk about that a little bit. Well, Texas was expanding. And so there was a lot of new construction in Texas because a lot of companies were moving to Texas because of the freedoms that they had and the, the laws to, to work in Texas were very favorable. And so a lot of companies came down to build and work in Texas. And I was lucky to be here at the time. If they, we got a reputation for building quality and straight, straight shooting, and uh, that helped us build our business. I'm so curious if you're building a company at the same time that, say, Trammell Crow, just to pick on another famous name in our business. Did you go parallel paths? Did you ever talk to him about the empire he was building and yours? Okay, this may be a dry thing, but I'm so curious. I never talked to him about that. Okay. I met him at different occasions at times. But. So your company's focused in the Southwest. When did you – well, first of all, when was your first – Iconic building. Was that the Shell Oil building? Pardon? Your first big building that we remember today. Was that, which was that? And how did you make the leap to building a major building? Well, we the built the buildings building? on Richmond Avenue. Uh-huh. And then we had the opportunity to um, build the Galleria. And at the same time... Uh, one Shell was the first big downtown building that we built. So talk, talk about One Shell. 
Yeah, you know, Shell was looking for a uh, facility for their Southwest Division. And we won that assignment. But when the Shell was located headquarters in New York, and they decided they wanted to come to Texas, to Houston, to move from New York to Houston. So the building that we were building for the Southwest Group, they moved that to a garage that we had next to Shell. Uh-huh. And we had office space built above. We were going to build office space above that. So they put the local group in there, which was a couple hundred thousand square feet. And they they took over the top floors in the, in the Shell building. There's more to the story. Was this a, was, was that, I may have my history wrong, but was that one of your first buildings working with what we now call Starkitects? Were there design elements special to that project? We had been working with a, a local group here, Newhouse and Taylor. I got to meet Bruce Graham at a conference I think in Mississippi or someplace like that. So when the chance came up for doing Shell, I remembered Bruce Graham and I went to him and I said, we have this. Why don't you come with me and we'll we'll pitch that to Shell. So I bought a, a lock set, a German lock set was really high quality show them that's the kind of quality we're going to build, boom, boom, boom. And we were awarded the Southwest group. Right. That was going to go into one shell. But then after the building got going, they decided they wanted to move the headquarters from New York to Houston. Right. And that's when they then said, well... We're going to take over the Houston space, and you move to the office building above the garage. And so we we had that available, and then we went on and built that office space above the garage. That's a great story. And you talked about pitching the business, and you also talked about bringing a really fancy German lock set. That's right. (laughs) So that was your prop? That was one of the props that we had. (laughs) And that denoted high quality. Yep. I love it. I they love could it. feel it. You know, and it was. They know they get the right thing. Yeah. Um, in passing, a few minutes ago, you talked about we had the opportunity, I think these were your words, to build the Galleria. I'm guessing it was more that it was, that was a visionary project and a groundbreaking project because you combined uses that haven't been combined before. There was vision in there. Not it's like the opportunity is a passive word, but you made your opportunity. So I'm just curious what, what what your breakthroughs were in putting that project together. Well, the breakthrough was, of course, to get Joskies, the big department store on the other corner. And that, Neiman's was going to build across the freeway. And, but to have that other big department store across the street was that they realized how that would attract 
with them there would attract a lot more business than being on, on the other side of the freeway. So that was, and they got it for no rent, so. That's pretty good. Pretty free. But that put together a shopping mall and office buildings done with high design, maybe for the first time. I'm sure there are other office buildings and shopping centers, but uh, but a hotel and a shopping center and an office building, that was unusual. When did your business move from the Southwest only to the rest of the country and then globally? So talk about the growth of the company and how you, how, what's the strategy and thinking behind well, that? Well, we had these... <clears throat> Great young men that were with us, and they always had itchy feet to go someplace else. Uh-huh. And uh, like Michael Topham, who was one of the, who came to us from Bank of America, and uh, he went to start our business in Denver, Minneapolis, Midwest. And so we had these great young men that were adventurers adventurers that would take your flag and your right. concept and yeah. plant it in other places yeah, that's right and something about that culture there's a culture to your company that is well known in the industry and maybe it's those great young men going out and building businesses but something emanates from here as well a consistency the what of that business Although I'm, I'm leading you with words, I think it's true. Well, it's uh, we wanted to do quality and outstanding architecture because we felt those were two of the primary reasons that would differentiate us. And so we took a smaller return, and our investors took a smaller return. But they had outstanding projects, which they knew would grow at a, at a higher rate than a Me Too project. Fair deal. So lower returns to begin with, but over the lifespan, which may be forever. Much higher. Much higher. And they last. There's Good architecture has a timeless quality to it. That may be the definition. We think so. It, um, it interfaces in the community with a reputation that gets you normally the best tenants. I think that's your business. That's the business. So then how did it go international? Well, our financing usually, um, they probably gave us a little bit more money for the same rent because they knew the quality of the project and they, our coverage wouldn't be as rigid as others. So we, we had investors that wanted to go with us because our, our project filled up faster and remained highly leased. Mm -hmm. So the money was asking you to build in cities around the world. The money was available. The money was available, and, and hopefully the uh, welcoming committee of the city would or would be positive for us. Of course. 
So talk a little bit about maybe your favorite city and tell a story of the building in that place that you love. Chicago and in New York, which is a very tough place to build. Yeah. We built some outstanding properties there. What's the one on Third Avenue? Is that the Lipstick Building? Lipstick Building. What, what, and tell me about the Lipstick Building. Well, that's a an interesting one that uh, was located on Third Avenue, and which was not the right part of town, but because it was unusual architecture, it got some very good tenancy, and that helped us in a emerging area. Now, I think that one became famous because of Madoff. Well, <laughs> <laughs> not your fault, I hope. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah Madoff was uh, one of our tenants, and uh, he recognized a good building. So I think he did. <laughs> um, so I'm, I live in San Francisco, and you're building the most iconic building in San Francisco with Boston Properties right now. And 101 California has long been the premier building in the city. Talk about, well, talk about both 101 California, because I'm curious. The architecture is amazing. And then the vision of building the tallest building in the West Coast. We wanted to build something that was iconic. We had a great location. And we had one of the great cities in America. And so... We had architectural competition for those, and we then selected what we thought was the best uh, architecture for that, and it's worked out well. Pick that building just for a minute. And so you have a bake-off between architectural firms to select the architect that will have the best vision for the building. And what's your personal involvement in working through that process? Is this totally delegated to someone in the field or is there a Gerald Hines? We have Jim Bowie that runs uh, the West Coast. Uh And he's a very experienced developer. And and he helped orchestrate that uh, whole process. Mm -hmm. If, If we pick one, though, and think of you, are you managing these folks and selecting the architect or do you come in and together yeah we talk about it and and then come to some decision of what we think the vision that we want and who can produce that Uh vision and then once the architect is selected what do do you personally spend time thinking about that helping them um, being involved in pushing the vision? I used to be a lot more involved than I am today. Uh-huh. They're very experienced today, and so of they, course. they can do it all by themselves. But they've all been there for a long time with us, and they participate in the ownership and the risk. Yesterday I visited with a fellow named Alan Patton who helped you get into the apartment business. Yeah. And he spoke very highly of you in his time with the firm. And one of his, and two comments, one is the apartment business does not produce iconic buildings. 
It can produce beautiful buildings, but not iconic buildings. And we talked about your personally diving deep with him to figure out the design and architecture and the apartment space. And you were pretty hands-on in understanding that business. Well, I had to learn it. <laughs> right. And that was 10 years ago, so you were in your mid-80s running around looking at apartments. So how do you put your imprint on that product type? What does the concept of design mean in a new product type for you? Maybe just the way they present themselves on the curbside and then corridors are very important to us and how you can delineate a corridor and make an entry very special for every person. And um, they're just not me two doors. Right. Makes a big difference. So talk about, we've talked about building buildings, but we haven't talked about building your company, except that you sent these strong uh, young guys out into the field to represent you and build the business on a regional basis. Um, alongside that, you became an investment manager. And I think you have... I don't, 55 funds you have sponsored over time? Well, have sponsored a lot. So talk about the fund side, the funds, not the fund side. It may be fun. The fund side of the business versus the development side of the business and how that's grown and what it means to your company. You can only do so much with your own balance sheet. And when you, but there's more product to be built than what you can fund yourself. And these large investors have a need to invest their funds into buildings in addition to joint ventures. So that became a, an area that we did provide access to people that had worked with us as a lender. And they knew how we handled our projects, the way we supervise them, and it gave us a leg up to help them in their investments. And so then alongside the buildings you're building, you're buying buildings and managing buildings for others. That's right. How do the concepts of quality and design and your corporate culture translate from the development side into the management side? Well, we have the same experienced people that build for us that then build for a third party. And we try to bring them up to the quality level that we think is important and they would like to have at a reasonable price. So we've been able to do that and we've gotten recognition in that part of the world. So your son Jeff is in the business He's now the CEO of the business. He's the CEO of the business. So talk about bringing your son into the business. Talk about... Bring working. my granddaughter in the business. Okay, tell and us my grandson. about grandson. I want to hear about that. So tell us about that. Well, <clears throat> my granddaughter was interested in the business. And after she finished it at Yale, she went to the Harvard Business School and uh, got her MBA, and then we have Adam, 
and Matthew, who are also in the, will be, Matthew will be in the business, but Adam is in the business in London. And so we'll have three grandchildren there eventually. Congratulations. Talk about working with Jeff and bringing Jeff up into the business as someone to succeed you and what that was like. Well, he came aboard and uh, he was president and I was chairman and we worked projects together and uh, evaluated them and he got very good at, at doing that himself. And so I gradually pulled, pulled away bit by bit. But you haven't pulled away entirely. We're here in your office. I'm sure. Oh, yes. I'm, <laughs> I still have an office next to him. Okay, good. But I'm 92. <laughs> so what's it mean coming to work at age 92? Well, it's fun. You're in an overview position. That's pretty good. So you don't have to meet any schedules. You do what you want to do and, and participate whenever you want to. Where do you add the most value in the business today for yourself? Judgment on design and talking about in conjunction with other people, how the project's going to get financed, what kind of joint ventures we need, how much equity we need to bring in from the outside to make it reasonable risk. We don't want to take huge risks. Um, and we don't have to have all the pie. Don't have to have all the pie is one of the best lessons in the real estate world. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard one. But what was the, if you look back on your career and look back on the project, what was the hardest project to get done that might have almost died along the way? I guess some of those on Richmond Avenue were some of the first ones that... Uh-huh. Uh, we had long lease-ups, and you only had so much time with the bank, and the bank started to put pressure on after after so much time. Right. Was there a time for the company that you either had to bet the farm, or if the lease-up was just a little bit longer, it wouldn't have made it? Well, we tried never to bet the farm. So we always had a limitation on how much risk they could call back on. Talk a little bit about your corporate culture and the company you've built. We've talked a lot about buildings. We've talked about some of your people. And we've talked about your family. But talk about the values and thoughts that you've instilled in this company and why you think it might last. Quality is one of the, the things that we look for imagination and iconic buildings that set a standard in that community and are recognized. And of course, it's hard to get the really prime locations because they're usually all taken. Right. And so you've got to take maybe a little bit off of the 100% corner or, and so you need good architecture to fill that building because it needs to make its representation on its own. And and what about integrity? That is that is that part of the, the secret sauce here? That's part of the integrity and how we treat people is part of our culture. 
So talk more about that. Well, I think our guys all realize what integrity means. And we stand by our word. We, we treat people fairly. And that's very important to all of us. Think about people who've grown in your company and grown with your company through the years. And you must be as proud of them as you are of your buildings. Oh, yes. You, you help build these people's lives and, in some cases, their fortunes as and there's well. there's some very rich men. Okay, congratulations. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit. What, you know, did you, what kind of relationships do you wind up having within the company over the years and how you maintain, maintained that over time? Well, they, we do give ownership to some of these leaders that pull these projects together and it vests over a period of time. So they have an incentive to stay with us. Ownership matters a lot, particularly in the real estate business. Yeah. And think about something that you've done globally that you're the most proud of outside of the U.S. Oh, I'd say uh, our buildings in Paris are, are very unique and we have some really iconic buildings there. Uh-huh. One that Harry Cobb did that uh, is one of the best buildings in La Defense and uh, I think is the premier building in La Defense. And uh, that helped make our reputation in France. Was that your first building there? Yeah, it's one of our first buildings. Uh-huh. And was that one hard to do coming in as a foreign entity building a big major building in that city? Everything's difficult in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Whether it's us or a Parisian. What was the hardest, what was your most satisfying relationship with an architect and the biggest challenge that you together faced? Well, I'd say there's two. It was the involvement of One Shell with Bruce Graham and the involvement of Pennzoil with uh, Philip Johnson. Uh-huh. Talk about Pennzoil. Yeah, Pennzoil, when we talked about Pennzoil, and I said I needed a second tenant, and he said, well, let's build a second building. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, and I said, well, how, how can we do that? And he sketched out this, um, the floor plan of what, how two buildings could be put with an atrium in the middle. And uh, we did, and we got a second tenant and named the second building after them. Any other stories of your specific work with architects or in specific buildings that you loved? Well, there's, uh, I'm sure there's throughout the, <laughs> the history. Great buildings in Minneapolis, great buildings in San Francisco, New York, Chicago, yeah, the one we just finished in Chicago, which is, what's our, Chicago? River Point, yeah. You look across the lake and uh, it's fantastic. Chicago is a city of beautiful buildings. The architecture in that city is stunning. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was one that made its mark in that city. That's not easy to do. No. Not easy to do. Is... um. So a couple of other questions. If you 
had some advice for a real estate executive planning the second half of their career and making their mark in the industry, what would that advice be? It all depends. How do they want to make their mark? In money or in reputation or publicity? I don't have the answer to that. (laughs) (laughs) You've done in all of those. You've had a, it feels like you've had a guiding principle in how you made your mark and you stuck with that guiding principle all along. I'm not sure we had a guiding principle. I think one we wanted to build uh, outstanding buildings because we wanted to get them leased and we wanted to differentiate ourselves from the Me Too. And we're not a Me Too kind of company. But interesting question just because we've talked about it so much, you want to build the outstanding buildings for a good purpose. I think at a certain point, having done that often enough, the thought of outstandingness, oh, <laughs> the yeah. concept of outstanding almost becomes who you are. You might have started it for a purpose, which was to make money better. Sure. It's safer. <laughs> it's safer. But then I think you might fall in love with building wonderful buildings. Well, no, because you've got a bottom line that you got to that you got to look at you know, every every time you come out of the chute. Always balancing that bottom line with the desire to build a wonderful building. Now, you don't have an unlimited budget on anything. That would be true. I think we've all learned that. So, if you had advice for a young person getting into the business and they're graduating from a real estate program or an MBA program, and they say, okay, real estate's where I want to go, what would your advice be? Get with a mature company and learn the business. And then when you decide that you want to, go out and put your shingle up. But you may, if you're with a really good company, hopefully they'll give you some equity And you don't have to go out and expose yourself. But that all depends on where you go. Where you go and how that works. I agree with you. So in our conversation, this uh, listeners will be listening to this for many years. So this will be on the iTunes store for a long time. Oh, really? What what haven't we talked about that you want someone to hear that has driven you through your career? But I think integrity... And how you handle your relationships with the city, with the, the tenant, and the community are very important to maintain your reputation. I agree. Okay. I think we're in good shape. Good. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.